0: Lord, we pray that in our worship of you, that your name would be glorified, and that you might meet us in our greatest place of need. Uh, even now, Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to us. In your name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're still in the book of Acts, but we're going to uh, we're going to chase a rabbit uh, for the next couple of weeks, and that is we're going to talk about worship at uh, the Advent. And this week, we're going to talk about why we do what we do here. And so we're looking at Acts chapter 14, continuing in succession, uh, beginning with the eighth verse, ending at verse 18. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, "'Stand upright on your feet,' and he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. The Word of the Lord. I love this passage uh, mainly because we had in our former church uh, the wife of an I mean the uh, daughter of an episcopal bishop and uh, and she had this passage to read, and it was a typical Episcopal moment because when she got to the part and she said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul, Hermes because he was the chief. <laughs> True story. I mean, it was the funniest thing. It was the funniest thing. So it, it was just so satisfying to hear uh, her say that because uh, where your treasure is, there's your heart. So, um, oh. Well, I mean, this passage uh, is pretty remarkable because uh, Paul and Barnabas have now gone up into the interior of Turkey, and uh, they're there preaching, and they're so bowled over by it they think that they've come that it's Zeus and Hermes that have come down. Uh, Barnabas is Zeus, and uh, Paul is Hermes because uh, Hermes, being the messenger of the gods, uh, Paul preaching. Uh, the word, they thought, well, surely uh, this, is, this is who this is. And of course, the healing of this man who could not walk uh, really pushed them over the edge so much so that the chief priest in the temple of Zeus uh, wanted to offer sacrifices to them. And, uh, and even after Paul gave what... Let's just be honest. That's not a very good sermon uh, that Paul gave. And even after that, uh, it, Luke tells us that even with these words... They scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. You know, all over the Mediterranean world, uh, where Paul and Barnabas and any Christian uh, went, uh, and even beyond that, uh, in some instances with the apostles, uh, they were always running into actually very religious people. There really wasn't anything known as an atheist in Jesus' day and age. They just didn't exist. Everybody uh, believed in something, even if it was fate. uh, They they believed in in something. They believed that there was some power or powers behind uh, what was going on. And so people uh, were inherently religious. And I know there's an argument today that people say that the world is getting more and more secular. But I just think that our religious beliefs are manifesting themselves in different ways. I think if you ask anybody, you know, if you get on the airplane and you sit next to somebody and you ask them, do you know Jesus? No, that's a great way to get sleep on an airplane. Ask them that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that's kind of a turnoff. But if you ask them, do you have any spiritual beliefs, be prepared to have your ear chewed off. Because people can talk at length about what their spiritual beliefs are if they know that they have the freedom to do that and as i've mentioned even in a survey of people in the united states that say they don't believe in anything anymore um, still feel that spirituality is a very important part of their life and indeed (coughs) excuse me over three quarters of the people who say that they have no religious affiliation three quarters of them grew up in the church and so they still want to hold on to what they feel like are the good things, regardless of what they are. And so even people who are uh, fiercely secular, I mean, even in this uh, thing happening on college campuses right now, this sort of moral outrage and outcry, it's taken on sort of religious connotations, uh, a deeply held belief in faith and whatever it is that they're believing and putting their faith in, and that anything that is over and against that... uh, needs to be gotten rid of, All right, So I do think it's uh, probably true in our world that people are not getting less religious, just the manifestation of their religion is changing. And in Paul's day, it was manifested in pretty traditional terms, right? You went up to the temple uh, in Jerusalem to worship. You went to the temple of Zeus uh, here at Lystra uh, to worship. Uh, Paul even, uh, when he was in Athens, preached. Uh, there was even a temple to the unknown God. If you can say anything about the Greeks, they had their bases covered, right? They, just in case. And, um, and even in the early church, you found that it was really hard, not that it's any different now, but really hard for some people to leave their old ways behind, whether that meant that they were still participating in certain things. You know, uh, when I was in Haiti last week, last week, 48 hours in Haiti. When I was in Haiti, they took me through a village and there in this village was uh, this large black, I wish I'd taken a picture of it, but I didn't, uh, this large black cross that was maybe 10 feet high. And on this black cross was painted a cartoonish image of Jesus with His tongue out and a serpent with its tongue out touching Jesus' tongue. I mean, talk about heebie-jeebies. Um, and that seems crazy, uh, but what you find in places like Haiti is that a lot of people are into voodoo, but they're also into Roman Catholicism, right? So they're still into faith in Jesus, but it's one of those things, well, I'm going to pray to Jesus, but just in case, I'm going to go talk to my man down the street who's going to mix up a root for me, and I can put it under my enemy's bed or put it in my front yard so that my house sells. Uh, Where happens? Um, So, Pat, are you trying to sell your house? No? Okay. Uh, Whatever it might be. Well, now we know what to pray for you about. Okay, well, whatever it might be, that was happening in the early church. But you also had people who were having a really hard time making the adjustment from Christianity because when they turned it off cold turkey, they began to have resentment toward those who were still, they felt, had feet in both camps. One of the ways in which this manifested itself was that, Um, meat sacrificed to idols. And St. Paul said, look, if it offends you to eat uh, meat sacrificed to other gods, for there are no other gods, then don't eat it. But if you can eat this hamburger that's been sacrificed to Zeus or whoever it is, uh, because we know there's no such person as Zeus, um, you're welcome to, to eat it as well. And uh, that's where he talks about, but if you're eating, if you're having some friends over, the weaker brothers who would be offended by this, don't serve this, right? Don't, don't, don't do that. And so there was a difficult transition and there's a difficult transition for us today, but the worship uh, of the church in the early days uh, was incredibly important and incredibly focused. And, And it's interesting to me that Um, we've moved away from a lot of things that marked early church worship. One of the things that marked early church worship is the fact that it was more of a family gathering than it was um, visiting the President of the United States or the Queen of England. You know, if you go... uh, Think about it. You just had Thanksgiving, right? Uh, And with all... You know, you got to hang out with all those people that you love uh, to see once a year. And... um, (laughs) And you went to the house, and it's boisterous, it's loud, you're catching up, you're laughing, uh, you're talking. Well, the early church would come together and share a common meal. They'd open up the scriptures, uh, they'd, somebody would give a sermon, uh, they would worship together. But it was very much like a, a family gathering. Now, if you were to go uh, to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue for Thanksgiving, or if you were to... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of what the equivalent in England is, Harvest Festival, Uh, or or Guy Fawkes Night, I guess, what might be another thing this time of year over there, but if you were to go to Buckingham Palace, uh, would you behave in the same way, or even dress in the same way, that you would at your family Thanksgiving gathering? No, (laughs) Uh, you wouldn't. Uh, you know, I think that's very funny. There's a sign, not that y'all read it because you, you don't do it, but as you walk into uh, the church from the Laban Passageway, there's this teensy tiny little plaque uh, that says, please be quiet, exclamation point, which I think is the funniest part that there's an exclamation point on it. And, um, and honestly, I, every time I say that plaque, it, it bothers me. Now, I think that you ought to be able to come into worship and kneel and, and pray, uh, but I hope that you're excited to see your family uh, as well. And uh, when I see, please be quiet, it's just uh, all of a sudden there's like an in crowd and an out crowd. So I'm not talking about being crazy uh, when you come into church, uh, but we have lost a sense of what it means to be uh, a family gathering. And as worship continued on, as worship continued on the church, it actually got farther and farther removed from that. Now, I do think we've had a bounce back a little bit, thankfully, uh, thanks uh, to uh, 1517, uh, but especially in the medieval church, it became even more distant, even more distant. So what was happening right before the Reformation broke out was that you had uh, the church worshiping in a language that almost nobody spoke. And actually, uh, there were a number, uh, you know, a majority of priests in the church didn't understand Latin. How about that? So here they were doing a service in Latin, and most of them probably could have given you the gist of what was going on, but they didn't even speak it. And uh, and then when they would commune, typically the people wouldn't receive communion, but the priest and people around up at the altar behind some sort of screen, they they would. And if you've ever seen, there's a great movie. Was it Joseph Fiennes? That's Ralph's brother, right? Joseph Fiennes was the lead guy in the movie Luther. Uh, it opens up with him celebrating communion for the first time, and he actually spills some of the wine, and his father basically disowns him for it. Like, your one job was to not spill anything, and you just totally and completely blew it. Why? Because it was literally Jesus' body and blood, and so you had to be in a right state of grace in order uh, to uh, to receive it. And so it was a pretty radical notion uh, when the reformers came along and said, first, you ought to be able to have a Bible to read, right? You ought to be able to read a Bible in a language you can understand. And not just that, but worship ought to happen in a language that you ought to be able to understand. And not just that, but when Cranmer and the other English reformers were forming their worship, uh, Cranmer had a very definitive idea of what he wanted to convey, to those who are worshiping. So one of the reasons why the Advent is a liturgical church. Now, every church has liturgy. Even the most freewheeling church on the face of the earth, they have a liturgy. They have a way that they do things. And typically, liturgy is translated to us as the work of the people. But one of the great insights of Thomas Cranmer was that liturgy was just not the work of the people. It was also God's work on the people that there was a message that Cranmer wanted to nail down deep into people's hearts, namely, uh, who Jesus Christ is, who we are, but above all, what Jesus has done for us. I think Cranmer—actually, I can go beyond that and say I know Cranmer— would be astounded to know that we're still using pretty much the same service he wrote in 1552, right? He wrote the first prayer book in 1549. He then revised it in 1552. And he was in the course of revising it again until he was burned at the stake. Uh, And so he didn't uh, get to revise it. It was revised once more uh, under Elizabeth and then once again in 1662. uh, And that has produced what is the standard prayer book for the communion in 1662. And so... Uh, it would have astounded Cramer to know that, that we didn't revise it, even though we have in the United States, but its basic form uh, hasn't really changed uh, since him. Now, the reason why the Advent is liturgical uh, is uh, because, not because of aesthetic considerations, uh, but because of theological considerations, Uh, We believe that the services that we use here uh, on Sunday mornings uh, best convey uh, what the Bible has to say about us, Jesus, and what He has done for us. That's why we... We don't use right one because we think that Elizabethan English is pretty, although it is. But how many of you actually pray... Actually, it's very funny. I I asked that question, how many of you actually pray in Elizabethan English, and every once in a while, I'll catch Adventers praying grace at their homes using Elizabethan English Lord, we thank Thee. I'm like, really? Do you? Do you say that? Um, um, how art Thou, Lord? Um, so, uh, <clears throat> uh, But at the same time, you know, that language does give us a sense of reverence that what we're talking about, uh, what we're talking about are not just common things, uh, but things of great significance and importance. <clears throat> I want to introduce you this morning <clears throat> to certain people who are great heroes of the church, <clears throat> the Episcopal Church in particular, and uh, Bishop Charles McElvain, uh is one of them. And McIlvain was the second bishop of Ohio. He was uh, the bishop there in the 1800s, uh, a really remarkable man, so much so that at the outbreak of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln asked Bishop McIlvain, an Episcopal bishop, to be the one party designated to go to England to keep England from siding with the South during the civil war so he was a man of great significance and importance and in fact he was on a first name basis with the royal family of great britain and uh... when he got older in life he went over to italy because he wasn't feeling well and he ended up well he he wasn't feeling well he died and um... and on the way back the the boat stopped in england and queen victoria had them remove the body and allow it to lay in state at westminster abbey for three days the one and only time that that privilege, and honor has ever been afforded an American was Bishop McElvain. Uh In fact, Charles Simeon, the great evangelical who we'll talk about in a minute, uh, preacher, the rector of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, loved McIlvain so much that when he died, he left McIlvain his cassock. You know that purple thing we wear? Except... Uh, um, except... Um, uh, what's-his-face, who I'm talking about, Simeon's, was black. And I've actually called the Diocese of Ohio and the Diocese of Southern Ohio uh, looking for this cassock. And, of course, they don't know where it is, boneheads. They've misplaced it, or they, they don't even know that it exists. And so it's upsetting to me that they can't find it. Not that I believe in relics, but I kind of do in that regard. So I just want to know where it is. So um, I think, actually, he may have been buried in it. So if we, we're going to have to go to some cemetery in Cincinnati and dig him up, but... <laughs> Uh, Bishop McElvain, uh, writing in the midst of the 1800s with the coming of the Civil War, uh, wrote this. The restless, insubordinate, innovating spirit of the times, these bitter things that are of some of the fruits already reaped for which multitudes of sober-minded Christians of all names are in great mourning, lamenting after times with which that with many have passed away, times in order and peace, of government and soberness, anxiously casting about for some remedy or at least some refuge till this storm be overpassed they that sow the wind must reap the whirlwind these institutions episcopal and liturgical based on the articles of faith so evangelical are the only ones that bid fair to stand unmutilated by the taste of the day by all means, let us stand. And so what McElvain was saying is that he felt that the Episcopal Church was one of the few places that was sort of an arc of refuge that you could go into the church and hear uh, the Word of God as contained in the liturgy. And also he talks about the articles, which are in the back of your prayer book. I encourage you to read those. Uh, that you would, you would hear objective, definitive truth outside of yourself, regardless of what's going on in the world around you. Now, one of the other reasons why we're liturgical and springboarding off of McElvain is that uh, we're not making it up as we go along, right? We're not making it up as we go along. I mean, you can go to churches where they kind of do that. I'm not saying that what they're doing is heretical or in any way wrong, uh, but, you know, they're they're just kind of doing their own thing. The service is going to change from week to week. It's going to be different uh, by any whim. Um, I have a friend who's a United Methodist minister, and I asked him what's the hardest thing about his church. He said, every Sunday is a different Sunday. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, we try to be liturgical like you, but we have all of these Sundays. He said, like, we've got American Indian Awareness Sunday. We've got, uh, you know, Turkey Victim Awareness Sunday. We've got, you know, I'm not trying to make light of this, but we've got all these Sundays that are thematic that actually tend to eclipse the message that we're trying to bring Uh, to uh, the people so being a liturgical church especially rooted in the prayer book keeps us uh, from um, from straying too far and so um, um, we uh, where are are we well that's not yeah okay so here's Charles Simeon Charles Simeon uh, he uh, loved the prayer book Uh, but what his parish didn't like initially was his preaching. Uh, In fact, when uh, Simeon began to preach, one of the things that he preached against was pew rentals. Believe it or not, up until the 20th century, there were a lot of Episcopal churches that charged pew fees. Uh, And and there there still are in Charleston. Uh, And so, and that's why the the pews were numbered because you literally could go up and be like, number 65, that's mine, you know, out. Um, (laughs) So, uh, Charles Simeon at Holy Trinity Cambridge, which is a big church there in the midst of the university, uh, began to preach. And his wardens tried to lock him out of the church. And when that failed, uh, they locked the pews. And so, people would pour in and sit in the aisles at Holy Trinity. And he was the, um, the rector of Holy Trinity for years and years and years. He went off to Cambridge, uh, not necessarily to study theology, uh, but he had a great nagging on his heart. And it used to be... If you were going to go to Cambridge or Oxford, you had to be an Anglican Christian. You could not be a Baptist. You could not be a Methodist. You had to be an Anglican Christian. And it was actually required that you had to receive communion on Easter Sunday, just once a year, once a year. And leading up to that Easter Sunday as his first year as an undergrad at at Cambridge, Simeon went through a huge crisis of faith, wondering whether or not he was worthy to receive communion. And that Holy Week leading up to it, day by day, he grew more and more in his awareness of what Jesus Christ had done for him, that by the time he was able to receive communion, he went out with boldness and gladness and joy filled his heart. And he said his life was changed uh, forever, studied for the ministry, went to Holy Trinity Cambridge, uh, remained the rector of that church up until his death. Uh, founded the Church Mission Society, which was one of the biggest missions. Missionary is actually the biggest missionary society in the Anglican Communion. They went primarily uh, to uh, Africa and to uh, Australia, and uh, also uh, you'd be. In he was the first man to popularize the umbrella in England. He introduced the umbrella to England. How could you not? be okay with an umbrella I mean give me a break so but uh, so the English take that very seriously Uh, he uh, he uh, ushered that in Uh, he also started what is now known as the church society which is a patronage society you may be curious to hear this in America when we're looking for a rector we kind of go through a search process in England a majority of the churches in the Church of England are held by a trust or an individual meaning they decide who goes into that church? So the church society has control over the livings of several churches. Uh, there are some Oxford and Cambridge colleges that actually own the living to several churches. And, um, and so that's actually the difference. If you find that somebody's the vicar of something, uh, it normally means that it's a diocesan church. If they're a rector of something, it means that it's probably in a trust of some kind. And so uh, because of that, the evangelical party uh, in England. Uh, was very, uh, very uh, strong and is strong to this day because they've been able to maintain uh, those uh, parishes. Now, what do I mean uh, by evangelical? Uh, That is somewhat of a dirty word uh, in our day and age, but I'll let Simeon uh, answer that question. Simeon, in a sermon preached, we have seen what was the great subject of the apostles' preaching in which he emphatically and exclusively called the gospel. And if only we attend to what he has spoken in the text, we shall see what really constitutes evangelical preaching. The subject of it must be, quote, Christ and him crucified. That is, Christ must be set forth as the only foundation of a sinner's hope, and holiness in all its branches must be enforced. But a sense of Christ's love in dying for us must be inculcated, as the mainspring and motive of all our obedience. The manner and setting forth of this doctrine must also accord with that of the apostle in the text. The importance of the doctrine must be so felt as to make us determined never to know anything else, either for the salvation of our own souls or for the the subject of our public ministrations." Viewing its transcendence excellency, we must rejoice and glory in it ourselves and show forth its fruits in a life of entire devotedness to God. We must call upon our hearts also to rejoice and glory in it and to display its sanctifying effects in the whole of their life and conversation. Thus to preach and thus to live would characterize a person and his ministry as evangelical in the eyes of the Apostle Paul. And so... Uh, evangelical actually doesn't have any political connotations, especially in England, Uh, but even in the life of the Episcopal Church, uh, people are amazed to hear the words evangelical and episcopal come together. Now, that is because they think of evangelical in terms of political thought and belief in our day and age, but what it means and what it's always meant in the Episcopal Church is exactly what Charles Simeon is saying, is that a premier paramount importance is the putting forward of Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the only means by which we might be rescued. And that that marks and permeates everything that we do. And that was the ministry of Simeon. Not just that, uh, but here's Charles McElveen. Um I mean, who was cutting hair back, back then? Uh Charles McIlvain, you know, his father was actually also a United States Senator, so he came from a long line of statesmen. uh, And uh, um, this is actually a photograph of Salmon P., uh, not uh, Philander Chase. Philander Chase raised Salmon P. Chase, his nephew, in his home because his father died. And of course, Salmon P. Chase would go on to be uh, Secretary of the Treasury under um, Abraham Lincoln as well as the governor. And, United, and Governor of Ohio and Salmon P. Chase would also become um, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. So, uh, Philander Chase preceded McIlvain. He founded Kenyon College uh, there, which actually for the longest time was a great powerhouse of evangelical learning. Uh, but there was a great missionary spirit because believe it or not, Ohio was the frontier, right? So they were going out and they were preaching the gospel. At the end of the, of the colonial period and the revolution, The church was in pretty bad shape, namely for two reasons. One, it was too closely associated with the Church of England, right? So the Anglican Church was Tory; it was too it was too close to the king; it was bad news. So they had a hard time. But there was also a great resistance within some in the church to this huge evangelical momentum that was happening during the Second Great Awakening that was beginning to permeate the Episcopal Church as well as a lot of other Protestant denominations, so much so that many rectors would shut their pulpits to people like George Whitfield, who was a priest in the Church of England, but they would shut them off. Uh, one of the greatest sources of this um, resistance was actually in South Carolina, And Alexander Garden, there were no bishops in the American church at this point, so they had commissaries. He was the rector of St. Philip's in Charleston. And uh, this is what Garden had to say about Whitfield and evangelicals. The revivalists begin at regeneration or the new birth, that they are the children of God, that is regenerate or born again, and that in this act or work of regeneration, we are holy and absolutely passive. No act of moral or religious duty, no sacrament, and no obedience to religious ritual could encourage or instill salvation. Garden warned, my brethren, the work of regeneration is not the work of a moment, a sudden instantaneous work, but a gradual and cooperative work of the Holy Spirit, joining in with our understandings and leading us on by reason and persuasion from one degree to another of faith, good dispositions, acts and habits of piety now how many of you have ever heard of alexander garden exactly right exactly this poor guy uh it's no wonder uh he failed miserably in south carolina uh because the people were drawing near because they heard this life-changing message of simple faith in jesus was enough to actually save the individual and uh if that is the definition of evangelicalism Uh, we plead uh, guilty. Uh, At the outbreak, so you had resistance uh, to um, evangelicalism and the revivals. You had uh, resistance because it was so closely aligned with England. Um, But uh, it was really just, uh, this is William Meade, Uh, it was so dead that his predecessor, James Madison, who was a cousin of President James Madison, was the first bishop of Virginia when we had uh, bishops and uh, the job of succeeding Madison was offered to two people. Madison quit as Bishop of Virginia, but kept his job as president of the College of William and Mary, just to give you an idea of what he was thinking. So he was like, I'm done with this. Nobody wanted the job until there was a guy that came along named William Meade. And uh, William Meade, by God's grace, single-handedly changed um, uh, the Episcopal Church and, and brought it back uh to life uh and he was a strong uh evangelical and helped found virginia seminary and over in england there were great forces that um that were wonderful leaders of the evangelical movement in uh in the world uh, this is william wilberforce right of uh, abolishing uh slavery in the british empire uh fame a uh very committed uh and devoted um churchman and, uh, and also uh, an evangelical. He spent a lot of time hanging out with John Newton and uh, William Cooper and others, uh, Lady Huntington, all those people that were known as uh, the Clapham sect because all of their houses were on Clapham Common. Common. And so uh, all of those men, uh, remarkable as they are, helped uh, feed into what was actually the dominant force in the Episcopal Church leading up Uh, to the Civil War. Now, there's another word uh, that defines us that is also a curse word, and that is Protestant. Uh, Now, that gets uh, a lot of bad press uh, simply because, um, well, it doesn't sound nice. It sounds like you're protesting something. Uh, But if you look up the etymology of the word protest, uh, it means to put forth something publicly, uh, to give witness, uh, to assert, Uh, indeed, to make a solemn declaration. And so it has less to do with being against something as it actually has to do with being for something, namely, this doctrine of justification by faith through grace. Now, speaking of dirty words, Meade, uh, Stephen Ting, and some other guys who were living around Washington, D.C., started a magazine back in the early 1800s called the Washington Theological Repertory, and it flew off the shelves. Uh, (laughs) And they wrote this in their very first edition. They said, The principles upon which this magazine will be conducted are those of the Bible as illustrated in the articles, liturgy, and homilies of the Protestant Episcopal Church. That's technically our official name. If by Calvinism be meant the doctrine, because that was a word that if you didn't like somebody, you just called them a Calvinist, and that torpedoed them for life. Uh, In fact, uh, when... um, Uh, y'all were looking for a dean uh before uh when you called frank limehouse uh somebody on the search committee talked to another priest in south carolina and they said well what do you think about frank limehouse and they said well you know he's a calvinist and like well what does that mean the guy really couldn't say it was just a nasty way to to you know basically saying you're a jerk uh and so um and so nothing has changed so in the early 1800s they're like Look, call us whatever you want, and if you mean what you mean by that, the doctrine of original sin, sanctification by the Holy Spirit, justification by the sole merits of our Savior Jesus Christ, we plead guilty to the charge. Our plan is to humble the sinner and to exalt the Savior, to show him the utmost depth of his depravity as the best and only means of inducing him to fly for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll put that on stationery any day. All right that's, that's a great uh, great. Uh, word. Our own Paul Zoll wrote this in his book The Protestant Face of Anglicanism Protestantism with a high profile evangelicalism. They cherished soul winning as much as they treasured historical theology this meant they emphasized the sermon over everything else in the liturgy it also meant that they used the prayer book to win hearers the book was not an end to itself rather it was an effective means to an end okay So, here at the Advent, uh, we're liturgical, but that's because there's an evangelical and a Protestant thrust to it, as I've defined here, and because we feel like it's the most effective way in order to impress upon you, the worshiper, uh, who you are, who Jesus Christ is, and what He has done for you. Um, Now, that brings us to today. Basically, the Advent is a dinosaur. Where we would be, if somebody, if we, uh, if we resuscitated Bishop McIlvain today, we, we brought him back to life, which, like Mickey Mantle, is he still on ice? I think, he, I think they did. They froze his head, right? I wonder where you keep that. Ted Williams. Ted Williams. Ted Williams. Ted Williams is frozen. So if, uh, if we did the same for McIlvain, what a favor that would be. Uh, if we did the same for McIlvain and brought him back to the Advent, he would be right at home, totally at home, not because of the language we use, but he would be one in accord in doctrine and spirit by what we're doing here at the Advent. I'm not sure that there are very many other places that you can go and do that. Now, why is that? Because shortly following the Civil War, there was a huge growth, and I'm not going to give them that much time, uh, but there was a a party in England that was called the Oxford Movement, and it all started because uh, there was a priest in Oxford who was also a professor (coughs) by the name of Pusey who was praying at the University Church of St. Mary, right there on the high street in Oxford, and the sexton uh, was trying to clean something above the communion table, and so he was standing on the communion table with his muddy boots, and Pusey just thought, there's something wrong with this, and he was right. He was absolutely right, but things had just gotten so sloppy and low that, that now they reacted pretty strongly to it, and what they did is they wanted to reintroduce a lot of medieval practices that were, um, that were abolished at the time of the Reformation. So things like Eucharistic vestments, lots of candles, um, uh, uh, private confessions to a priest, um, that the bread and the wine literally become Jesus' body and blood. Um, you have, for the first time ever, people calling uh, Episcopal ministers Father, I mean, has anybody read George Eliot or Trollope or, or anybody like that? Did you ever hear anybody in any of those novels call their priest father? Never. It was always Mr. So-and-so or Dr. So-and-so. And so it took on a much more Roman Catholic uh, feel to it. And I, look, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, and a lot for those Anglo-Catholic priests now, um, a lot of them went to Rome, but, but some of them stayed. And uh, But God bless them, they went where people weren't willing to go. I mean, they would go into the inner city, into the slums, and really uh, work uh, for the Lord. And if you spent your entire life in a dull and dreary and awful factory, you probably would really appreciate some pageantry and some beauty and uh, some aesthetic considerations in your worship, incense and things like that. Um, so it's very funny that when you go to England... That stuff is almost non-existent in the Church of England. It just isn't. And I think that part of it has to do with they've got enough pomp and pageantry in their own culture, right? Just go, how they change guards, right? When you have a changing of the guard at a U.S. Army base, what happens? So yep, right, you just, and you walk up. When you have a changing of the guards, whether it's the horse guards or whether it's uh, the guards at Buckingham Palace, uh, it's a big orchestrated uh, deal. And that's not to say that Uh, We don't put uh, an aesthetic consideration into our liturgy because we want it to be beautiful. We want it to point uh, to the Lord Jesus. But uh, the movement didn't catch on as much as it did in the United States to the point that actually a group of priests and a bishop left the Episcopal Church in 1873 to form the Reformed Episcopal Church as a response uh, to uh, that. Now, um, I've been reading recently... Uh, two priests who uh, are on the conservative side of the spectrum in the Episcopal Church, and I, I want you, uh, they're talking about unity in the church. They're talking about unity in the church. And, um, and you may also, as by way of background, know that the Episcopal Church is, is in the process of developing a new prayer book. Be that as it may, that's, that's just what's happening. And, uh, and so they're, they're responding uh, to this. One of them, John Thorpe, in the Diocese of Dallas, wrote this. "Uh, One meta-value narrative tends to stand out among the rest here in the Episcopal Church and even to act as a sort of rally point for those who hope for unity, and it is the meta-value of beauty. Our sense of beauty in the human form is culturally conditioned, to be sure, and definitions of beauty can be subjective, But a common appreciation for the aesthetic of traditional American liturgy seems to be the one commonality that progressives and conservatives share in North American Anglicanism. Whatever our thoughts are on the issues of the day, most of us want the English boys' choir to come and sing at our parish. Whatever our drive toward social activism, there's a certain decorum that must be maintained on Sunday morning. We might change the words of the creeds and the content of the Book of Common Prayer, but the idea of the Book of Common Prayer remains something around which North American Anglicans want to rally. And that idea is not based on uniformity of worship. Few of us want a dogged insistence on the rubrics of conformity, heaven forbid, but we do want the beauty of the liturgy. We want to continue to experience the aesthetic power of the Book of Common Prayer and the Episcopal Church's liturgical heritage. Even if we are unsure about our faith in the God named in the prayer book, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't want to let go of the aesthetic. Well, if that's true, we're doomed. Right? If, if all that's holding us together is the aesthetic of things, then we're in big trouble. At Lambeth Conference in 1998, where all the bishops of the communion got together, uh, somebody was talking about what holds us together as a communion. And one American bishop articulated this. And, uh, and an African bishop got up with a smile on his face and says, I know what holds us together, whipples which is the church furnishing company that makes all of our shirts and things like that. Uh, and he's right, because there's actually a gradation like Whipple's is the best, and then you've got the people that aren't so good. But it's made in England and is a very poor quality, but overpriced, like most things in England. So um, that's, uh, that's what uh, perhaps this means of our Anglican aesthetic can be a center uh, for unity. But you and I know that that's not true. You and I know that that's not true, because it's not about what's out here. It's about what's going on in here, right? That's how we connect with one another. That's how we relate. And the basis of our unity is in Jesus Christ. So one of the wonderful things about the Advent that I just love is our Lenten preaching series, that we can bring in Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, free church people, all across the board. And certainly we're going to have our disagreements with them over various and sundry things. But at the same time, we hear them preaching the gospel message and we say, that person's with us. We're with them. This is the church Catholic played out large scale. Now, I would say that now there is a value to the aesthetic of liturgy. We don't want to do anything haphazardly. And for many of you, it may be the first thing that drew you into the Episcopal church was the beauty of the liturgy. But I bet you that your appreciation grew for it more the more you began to go through the actions and understanding what the liturgy meant rather than simply what it was or is. And I would... Uh, dare say, that many of you who are sitting here this morning did not grow up in the Episcopal Church. Just didn't, right? Uh, For those of you that were blessed like me to do so, um, you're stuck with it. Uh, I didn't know any different. Uh, And yet, uh, it really is a wonderful gift uh, to uh, the world. Um, But Uh, A friend of his, uh, Mark Michael, who is in the Diocese of Albany, uh, wrote this in response. Uh, But one wonders, this is talking about whether or not to revise the prayer book, but one wonders if we are really finished with other things that the 1979 book is calling us to do. Have we, for example, truly lived into this book's Catholic potential? are the full liturgies of the Paschal Tritium celebrated in every parish with care. Now, who knows what in the world... That, I think he got that from Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> is that... I actually do know what it is. Uh, it is, It's... it's a ba- an Easter Vigil, it's having uh, a service on Saturday. Uh, is the reconciliation of a penitent a regular part of pastoral practice? That is me telling you, you need to come and confess my sins, you need to confess your sins to me so that I can absolve you. Do all of our people pray the daily office using one of the book's manifold forms? Heaven forbid you use my utmost for its highest. Woo! Uh, does its excellent catechism, it's not great, shape our approach to Christian formation and preaching? Uh, well, the answer to all those is, is no. Like, I don't want to do an Easter vigil and that's never been in the prayer book until now. Why? Because there's, let's not pole vault over Good Friday. Let Jesus lie in the tomb for a Saturday, right? That's, let us think upon his death. Uh, what the Easter uh, Saturday liturgy does basically gives us a, um, a preview of Easter, but we're going to get plenty of that on the Sunday when Jesus gets up and gets out of the tomb And I'll simply close with this. Uh, Paul in his writings, uh, we we see his missionary journeys, uh, we hear what he preached, but the very last thing that he wrote was his second epistle to Timothy, right? There he was in jail, not sure he was going to live, and this was his final chance to impart to Timothy whatever advice he had about ministry. And here we have in the last chapter of the last thing that Paul ever wrote, writing to Timothy, He said this, "'I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, "'who is to judge the living and the dead "'and by His appearing and His kingdom, "'preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, "'reprove, rebuke, and exhort, "'and and complete patience and teaching, "'for the time is coming when people "'will not endure sound teaching,' but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Uh, That is our calling, and that is what we do in worship here that is not to denigrate especially the sacrament of the Lord's body and blood we're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks with the role of the sacraments in the life of the Christian uh, but that is to say uh, that we have one mission in our worship and that is to praise Jesus Christ to lift him up uh, to glorify him uh, and in doing that uh, we receive the benefits of his goodness and mercy uh, for our good there's a lot who would have ever thought I would have told you about William Mead? Uh, but questions, comments, concerns in the last two minutes. They got a budget for the new prayer book? I hope that they spend recklessly. Uh, I really do. Yeah, no, it, it's called, it, it, it actually, that is one of the things they're talking, the church can't afford one right now, but they're going to do it anyway. Okay. Going past- up yeah. um, you mentioned that that you didn't mention as a tension, but there's a the tension between uh, the ongoing work of, of becoming a good Christian mm-hmm. and the instantaneous conversion right concept um, how do you see that tension yeah well uh There is a tension because of our own sinful nature. We feel the tension. And in fact, the longer you're a Christian, the more you feel that tension, right? The more you feel uh, that you're not the person that God has called you to be and you're not the person that you're going to be by God's mercy and God's grace. And yet at the same time, if we're to be sanctified, if we're to be set apart, if we're to be made holy, which is what sanctification means, that has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And in this life, we will never see the perfection that we will see in the next world. Uh, Now, I know that there are those like Wesley, John Wesley, for instance, preached that you could actually receive perfection while you were alive. You could experience God's perfect love without blemish. I don't believe that that's uh, what the Bible says. And um, I think it's remarkable in the prayer book, uh, the words and phrases that a lot of people are offended by, uh, some of which have been removed like uh, miserable offenders, Um, or the burden of our sins is intolerable to us. Um, I think that that shows the mark of a real Christian, um, the one who who is willing to admit, I struggle, I struggle mightily against uh, the flesh, uh, but I know that I have a greater Savior, and that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the truth to be lived into. And by that, you actually find yourself being changed by the Holy Spirit. Dense, sorry. All right, I got to go to work. God bless you.